It's hard to find the time to read all of the best articles on Bitcoin and the crypto economy. So let me read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Welcome back to the Crypto Economy. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are continuing Sovereignty Through Mathematics by Knutz von Holm. So if you have not listened to previous episodes, again, we are jumping right into the middle of this. This will be part four of a five-part read. And this is the full unabridged audiobook of Sovereignty Through Mathematics. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, go back and do that. But for now, we are jumping right in on chapter eight, Changing the rules. Altering the Bitcoin protocol is easy. The code is open source, which means that anyone can download a copy of the code and make whatever changes they want to it. Altering what the participants of the Bitcoin network view as the real deal, however, is hard. Really hard. Gaining their acceptance requires the proposed upgrade to be really good and really bulletproof in terms of not altering the game theoretical fundamentals that make following the rules beneficial to the miners. Upgrades to the protocol can be implemented via either a soft fork or a hard fork. A soft fork is a voluntary, backwards compatible upgrade. A hard fork requires every node in the network that wants to stay active to upgrade its software. At this point in time, it is unlikely that Bitcoin will ever hard fork again. Even a soft fork can be very controversial, and a great debate between proponents of different paths to scaling up the Bitcoin network in 2017 led to a portion of the network forking off and creating a new chain via a hard fork. Even though the proposed upgrade was implemented following the consensus rules, some participants weren't very happy with it. The internet is an ocean of misinformation, and more often than not, it is very difficult to navigate through it. The sheer amount of dishonesty in the so-called crypto space is really depressing and has very little, if anything, to do with sound money. The blockchain does one thing and one thing only. It solves the Byzantine general's problem with the help of Bitcoin's consensus rules. That's it a problem most people have never even heard of. The Byzantine General's problem describes how hard it is to construct a network where the participants can come to a consensus on the true state of the network without needing to know or trust any of the other participants. In other words, how to construct a network in such a way that no trust is required, while ensuring the information sent via the network is true. A blockchain by itself does not ensure decentralization. It is not the underlying technology behind Bitcoin in any way. Bitcoin is the underlying technology behind the blockchain hype, but saying that the blockchain is the key invention here is misguided at best. The anchor chain is not the underlying technology behind the anchor. 
Nor is the keychain the technology behind the key, or the food chain the underlying most interesting aspect of a human being. Be very skeptical of those promoting blockchains that do not see Bitcoin's blockchain as the most important one. Even social networks with billions of users. They are practically saying that masturbation is the most important aspect of sex. At any point in time, any participant in the Bitcoin network can stop agreeing with the network's way of determining scarcity and coming to consensus. A participant can choose to follow a hard fork of Bitcoin, exchange all of their Bitcoins for another cryptocurrency, or abandon the idea of digital scarcity altogether, if they so choose. What they can't do is change Bitcoin, change what others perceive to be Bitcoin, or change the nature of how Bitcoiners determine scarcity. Unlike every government-backed currency, no one is forcing anyone to agree with anything in Bitcoin. It is a completely voluntary system with no formal leaders. We humans aren't used to leaderless systems, and the idea of having no authority telling us how to think about it is scary to a lot of people. As mentioned above, many opportunists take advantage of this, and many people will lose money to scammers before Bitcoin finds its rightful place in our society. Stay vigilant and be suspicious of any, quote, cryptocurrency that isn't Bitcoin. Every claim that an alternative currency has a new feature is better for the environment, is faster or more anonymous than Bitcoin, or can be used as a base layer for building decentralized applications, is a testament to misunderstanding what the invention of Bitcoin really was. It was not so much an invention at all, but rather a discovery. The discovery of true digital absolute scarcity. Absolute scarcity whose most obvious use case was sound money. A discovery is a one-way occurrence. Thousands of people fly from Europe to America every day, but that doesn't make those people as historically significant as Christopher Columbus. Nor will any social network coin, petrodollar, or altcoin ever be as significant as Bitcoin. While changing Bitcoin might be really hard, changing the current political state of the world is nearly impossible. Not because of the risk of having your voice drowned out, everyone on the internet faces that hurdle, but because the game is rigged. It's rigged everywhere. Ignorant bloggers with hubris and a paycheck, often referred to as, quote, journalists, often parrot their unseen masters, the central bankers, and accuse Bitcoin of being the biggest pyramid scheme ever known to man. Our current monetary system is a pyramid scheme of such gargantuan proportions that almost everyone on earth fails to see it for what it is, since the bubble encapsulates the entire planet. Quantitative easing is counterfeiting, and counterfeiting is theft. Wealth is stolen from everyone and given to those most cynical and evil among us. If we had sound money, the playing field would be leveled, and those of us making the most responsible investments would be rewarded. Right now, our system rewards ignorant demagogues and outright liars instead. A hierarchical system of power will always favor those who crave power above all else. A decentralized system will not. It 
cannot. It's fair. According to a recent study in the journal Intelligence, highly intelligent people are more likely to be diagnosed with various mental disorders, such as autism spectrum disorders, 20% more likely, ADHD, 80%, anxiety, 83%, and they have a 182% higher likelihood of suffering from one or more mood disorders. The study compared data from the American Mensa Society to data from national surveys in general. According to another study published a couple of years back in the British Journal of Psychology, highly intelligent people are more likely to have fewer friends than those less fortunate in the cognitive department. In addition to this, many separate studies show that ADHD brains are linked to higher performance in some measures of creativity than their, quote, normal counterparts. Having suspected that having a brain on the spectrum runs in my family, both up and down the generations, I dug a little deeper into the subject. I did this mainly because I'm curious about myself and why I function the way I function, but also because of the fact that these, quote, diseases were almost unheard of when I grew up. I've done a couple of tests online. They all say I'm quite likely to suffer from one of these conditions, mainly ADD. I've heard preschool teachers voice suspicions about spectrum disorders in one of my kids, and even though I suspect that some teachers look a little harder for these things than they probably should, I wouldn't be surprised if the child's behavior matched more than one of these spectrum condition criteria. A thing that did surprise me, though, was that the Swedish Ministry of Education recently decided to pay extra attention to extraordinarily gifted children. Very unsocial democratic indeed, and probably a sound thought. I became curious and looked at the paper on what behaviors teachers should look for in these children. They were remarkably similar to those who could label another child with ADHD or ADD. So, one child gets to skip a class and another is given amphetamine to be more like the rest of the flock, all depending on the judgment of that particular child's teacher. Ritalin and other amphetamine-like drugs have for a long time been prescribed in mass to children with suspected ADHD and ADD in Western societies. Some countries are more restrictive than others, but these practices are present to some extent almost everywhere. People are being given antidepressants all over the world, and there's an opioid epidemic in the United States. Could it be that we're seeing this from the wrong perspective? What do the institutions and schools have to do with our recent love for mental medication? Here's a scary thought. Are we medicating the wrong segment of the population? Could it be that the less intelligent are unable to understand the behavior of the more intelligent? I'm not saying that everyone on the spectrum is hyper-intelligent, but maybe there's a grain of truth here. Not being able to properly adjust to groups may just be a side effect of preferring to be alone. Not being good at submitting to the will of authorities may be a sign of independence rather than simple disobedience. Imagine if Nikola Tesla or Albert Einstein had been given Ritalin at an early age. Would they ever have come up with the amazing innovations and insights that they did if they'd been medicated into being docile sheep instead. 
Without the crazy ideas of Tesla, who allegedly was considered a weird loner by his peers, we might not have alternating current, without which the world would be a very different and darker place than it is today. Good ideas propel humanity forward, and we have no idea what we're missing out on by turning our would-be future inventors and scientists into zombies instead. Keeping the ducks in line might seem beneficial to the collective, but it is only the individual that can spawn an original idea. Our societies are built upon institutions, and institutions once in place have a tendency to act in their own best interest. The people in them have much to lose by not giving in to the will of the machine, so to speak. This includes our schools, in which the children are lumped together for many years with potentially nothing in common but their age. They are then forced to imbibe a curriculum adapted to the median, neatly packed into different subjects, and are then graded by the person most likely to be biased against their talent that exists, the teacher. The internet has long since rendered this system obsolete, but it seems only free thinkers understand that. If anyone should be medicated, it is not the children, quote, on the spectrum. Instead of giving these kids mind-numbing drugs, maybe we should try giving everyone else mind-enhancing drugs instead. The sad story about dumbing down the gifted for the sake of the collective is nothing new. The Arab world, for instance, thrived scientifically between the 8th and the 14th century until a collective interest of religion effectively killed that. Socialist states keep collapsing, Venezuela being the latest tragic addition to this collective madness. Russia threw one of their best thinkers ever, Garry Kasparov, in jail. In short, any society that puts the collective before the individual is on a very dangerous path. Thanks to Keynesian economic theory and central bank counterfeiting, or quantitative easing, all countries are on this path right now. What are the odds that Satoshi was on Ritalin when he wrote the Bitcoin white paper? Changing the rules of any game is always hard when you're a participant rather than a game designer. The game you're in is rigged and you're a pawn on someone else's chessboard. A pawn whose main purpose is to be sacrificed in order to protect the king. Now look at how the artificial intelligence algorithm AlphaZero plays chess. The newly crowned ultimate chess player does one specific move a lot more often than any of its predecessors. It sacrifices pawns. Ask yourself, are you happy with being a pawn? Does your government's promise of a social safety net seem legitimate to you? Will your current job even exist in 20 years? In 10? You don't need to be a pawn. More importantly, you don't need to leave the game entirely. Even a very small investment in Bitcoin has an enormous potential upside. The Lightning Network is a technology that changes the rules of what money is and what money can be. Once you have a Lightning Network wallet installed and topped up with some Bitcoins on your phone, you quickly realize that it's even easier to use the Lightning Network than it is to use the basic Bitcoin network. You scan a QR code and press send. That's it. Transactions on the Lightning Network are instant, free, and anonymous. Even though it's still in beta at the time of writing, 
it works like a dream. Imagine what you can build when money can flow through pipes like water or even energy. Circuits that run on value instead of electricity. Logic gates made electronics possible rather than mere electrics. Value gates would open up a whole new spectrum of invention where human interaction would act as fuel for human ingenuity directly. Chapter 9. Money as an Amplifier Money can be viewed as many things. It is often described as a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a unit of account. As discussed earlier, one can boil down the definition even further. At its very core, money can be defined as a linguistic tool for expressing value, or even just gratitude to another person through space and time. From this perspective, money acts as an amplifier of a person's personality. If you're altruistic by nature, suddenly having lots of money won't make you less generous, but rather enable you to express your personality in more ways. Unfortunately, in a cultural environment such as the one we live in now, credit is cheap and economic incentives are skewed. Impulsive, irrational financial decisions in all segments of society are dictating all of our lives. If we didn't have inflation, in other words, if we had sound money, we would be incentivized to save rather than spend. Sustainability would come naturally to us. The lack of sound money also affects the impact money has on our personalities and its effectiveness as a personality amplifier. Sound money would allow for more honesty and more real solutions to more real problems. One of the problems that arises from speaking a malfunctioning language of value is that it affects freedom of speech. If the system is rigged to focus on everything but the underlying problem, the entire political landscape becomes a cosmetic charade to keep us from asking the really hard questions about how a human society really ought to operate. Can a person be truly honest publicly in an environment that constantly forces him or her to work harder and harder to afford higher and higher cost of living due to artificial inflation? Those that are wealthy enough might, but the system keeps funneling power from the common person to the elite. In an era where a handful of companies handles almost all internet traffic, subverting free thought can be a very dangerous thing. In addition to the subtle subversion originating from a flawed monetary policy, the titans of Silicon Valley seem more and more prone to give in to the angry mob that proclaim to stand united under the banner of social justice. Political correctness, feeding on a collective feeling of guilt in some parts of the Western world, plays a large part in the wave of censorship that has been deplatforming some of the more controversial content creators lately. We live in dangerous times when it comes to freedom of thought. The old media publishers keep claiming that their worldview is the only honest one, while regular people and all their different opinions are increasingly challenging what is and what isn't to be considered as news. The increasing distrust of politicians all over the globe might be a product of fear mongers to some extent, but it is also a direct consequence of the fact that people have more options when it comes to how they consume information about the current state of the world.
In other words, brainwashing is not as easy as it used to be. Unfortunately, distrust in politicians has mostly led to more extreme variations of the same thing. Nationalism on the right and socialism on the left are ideologies on the rise on both sides of the Atlantic. These are red herrings at best. Politicians don't give power back to the people. That's just not what they do. In the next decade, many of humanity's most important decisions will be made. The fate and future of the EU, China, and the U.S. will be determined by these decisions. You won't be able to alter or even influence them, but you will be able to choose to what extent they will dictate your future. There are ways of opting out of everything. You can quit watching TV, stop reading newspapers, and fill your roof with solar panels. But most importantly, you can opt out of the financial system to whatever extent that suits you. Bitcoin is a voluntary system. Democracy isn't. 2018 saw the rise of the so-called intellectual dark web, an umbrella term for a collection of free thinkers who have used the internet to defend their respective positions in a variety of matters, and freedom of speech particularly, for the last couple of years. Being concerned with the rising trend of deplatforming and censorship on major social media, some of the more popular members of the group are now trying to find alternative ways of monetizing their content. Ten years after Bitcoin's immaculate conception, major renegade thinkers are starting to oppose the Orwellian tendencies of the Silicon Valley giants. All the tools we need for taking a stance against censorship are at our disposal, but it's up to each and every one of us if we dare to use them or not. The internet keeps on disrupting every imaginable business model and shows no signs of slowing down this process. On the contrary, peer-to-peer -peer solutions like Uber and Airbnb are increasingly taking over and exposing, quote, regulated markets for what they truly are, cartels. In an era where credit card companies have the power to disconnect any user with an unwanted spending pattern from their money, Centralized databases can be very dangerous, and a business model is not really disrupted until every rent-seeking middleman has been removed from the equation. Whoever controls the money supply is the ultimate middleman. That's where the cord needs to be cut if we truly want to emancipate ourselves. You decide. Not them. You the phenomenon of fake news is easier to understand if you remember how much bigger newspaper organizations used to be in the past and what made them smaller. Their whole revenue model was disrupted when the internet turned the advertising industry on its head. All of a sudden, ads were no longer a guessing game, but a precise tool that could be used to collect vast amounts of data about how many potential customers a product would have, and later on, specific data about each and every customer. This led to a downsizing of the news organizations as their ad revenues started to shrink. Simultaneously, everyone on earth was given the ability to post whatever they had to say to everyone else and to monetize their voices through ads. Both the old and the new media quickly started to accuse each other of spreading false information, and the trust that we had all outsourced to journalists started to erode. 
Nowadays, it's harder than ever to separate trustworthy sources from untrustworthy ones. On the other hand, propaganda machines are harder to build since everyone's able to hear different perspectives on every subject. What would happen if money itself was to be disrupted in the same way that the old media houses were? What if people started to label, quote, the full faith and credit of the National Bank of Nation X as fake news? What happens when we collectively start to question the credibility of our dollar bills or euros or yen? We are about to find out, and we can still choose what side of history we want to be on. It's hard to separate real from fake when it comes to news, but when it comes to money itself, the perfect tool for evaluating the realness of it is already there. The market will tell you what's valuable and what's not. Over time, the truth will reveal itself. Money is an amplifier of ideas, and money doesn't really care if the idea itself is good or bad. Political ideas often have the opposite effect of what they're intended, or at least advertised, effect is. An income tax, for instance, stops generating revenue for the state as soon as the tipping point of the Laffer curve is reached. After a certain level, the income tax just prevents people from working altogether, especially if there's a social insurance policy in place. The Robin Hood-esque narrative of the left is often portrayed as a morally noble thing by its proponents, despite the growing number of examples of the opposite all over the globe. The internet startups are leaving San Francisco for Texas, and the misfits start flocking in instead. People are literally dying from drug overdoses on the streets, while the politically correct overpaid hipster in the neighboring cafe enjoys the feeling of superiority that comes with the environmentally friendly paper straw he just got in his chai latte. Opportunist men in their 30s claim to be refugee children in order to leech on the welfare states of Sweden and Germany, creating a political divide and a much worse situation for those in actual need of help. In a world with sound money, the greedy would have to provide a lot more value to their fellow man in order to accumulate wealth, since money would be harder to come by. We'd better remember that Robin Hood was first and foremost fighting against taxes. Money is an amplifier, and unsound money inevitably produces unsound societies. As the Bitcoin network grows, so does its fee market. Some people argue that because of this, Bitcoin cannot scale. This viewpoint stems from an unsound attitude towards Bitcoin. Some loud-mouthed actors in the cryptocurrency community start to bicker and moan whenever Bitcoin chooses to implement, or more often than not, chooses to not implement a proposed upgrade. Their view of what Bitcoin ought to be doesn't matter to Bitcoin. Bitcoin's ironclad resistance to the whims of the self-entitled early investor Tony Stark wannabes of its social media entourage is one of the biggest aspects of what makes it so special. Imagine trying to buy a cup of coffee with gold. In order to make a safe transaction, where the validity of your tiny gold pebble was verified by several independent chemists and your pebble was transported to your local Starbucks in an armored van, you would have to pay an absolutely enormous, quote, fee. Despite its obvious flaws as a medium of exchange, gold is very valuable. 
despite its complicated divisibility, its lack of eligible usage properties, its lack of a decentralized layer 2 scaling solution, and its relatively easy confiscatability, gold remains a good store of value. Bitcoin is also, regardless of what anyone thinks about it, a store of value above a medium of exchange. This is more important than it might seem. If Bitcoin should fail at holding value long-term, its whole value proposition would disappear. A fast and smooth, highly centralized medium of exchange is not a groundbreaking invention in any sense. We already have plenty of those. It is quite arrogant to think that your own personal influence could steer Bitcoin in another direction. You can deceive people into thinking that your fork of Bitcoin is the real deal, but that will damage your reputation more than it will damage Bitcoin in the long run. A fork of Bitcoin ignores Bitcoin's consensus rules, and that makes a fork little more than any other copy-pasted code. Admitting that you're a Bitcoiner publicly is not without risk. Not only does it pose a personal risk to you as you become a potential target for burglars and thieves, but in doing so, you also put your reputation at stake. Not mainly because of the reason people think, namely that Bitcoin might not work and its price might go to zero because of this or that. The biggest damage to the reputation of us Bitcoiners is being done by the seemingly endless amount of scammers and free riders that this technology attracts. Even though the Bitcoin network is a lot bigger than any of its competitors' networks, people outside of the cryptocurrency space are having a hard time telling the difference. As most, if not all, of Bitcoin's rivals are scams, Bitcoin is being perceived as guilty by association by a large portion of the general public. This may cause the public Bitcoin enthusiast a lot of reputational damage short-term. Long-term, however, is a different matter altogether. Long-term, denying the impact Bitcoin will have might be a far worse opinion to hold. The people going public with their ill-informed skepticism to something they don't fully understand will be remembered in the same manner as those comparing the internet to a fancy fax machine in the 90s. Bitcoin is hard to understand because it shatters many political ideas since money becomes virtually non-confiscatable in a Bitcoin-denominated world economy. Just as the business models of the 20th century that revolved around charging people for selling them copies of films, music, or books got shattered by subscription services like Netflix, Spotify, or Audible, macroeconomic business models based on the notion that you can force people to crowdfund projects through taxes or inflation will suffer the same fate if they don't adapt quickly enough. This realization is way too big a mental somersault for some people to grasp. It turns how we think about value on its head and forces us to accept the hard truths of economics, currently only truly understood by economists of the Austrian variety. Given a generation or two, though, Bitcoin's advantages will simply be undeniable. Whew, all right, I'm going to need a break here, and then we will jump into Chapter 10. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and hit our sponsor. Chapter 10. The Environment There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as a zero-sum game. The second law of thermodynamics tells us this. 
You know, the one about entropy and how everything will be really lame in a couple of trillion years. There's no action without an equally big reaction somewhere. This is also true for Bitcoin mining. Every once in a while, some ignorant, clickbait-hungry journalist writes an article about Bitcoin's energy usage and how it's connected to global warming, or how widespread Bitcoin adoption would kill us all someday because of its, quote, wasteful production process. What they all fail to address is the alternative cost. As mentioned before, a Bitcoin is valuable because it's scarce, and it's scarce because it is costly to produce. The same is true for gold or diamonds or anything else that is scarce and hard to come by. As discussed in earlier chapters, the mining algorithm can never be any more energy efficient because the electricity spent is directly linked to the value of the token. Secondly, think about what most people use their Bitcoins for. Nothing. That's right, nothing. Bitcoin incentivizes saving rather than spending. This is the exact opposite of how people use money in our current system of fiat currencies because Bitcoin is deflationary rather than inflationary relative to all other currencies. This means that every dollar, yen, or pound spent on Bitcoins would have ended up being spent on some other energy-demanding thing had it not been spent on the Bitcoins. Either that or it would have lost its value due to inflation, which implies that even more dollars, yen, or euros would have been created and spent on frivolous things. Right now, credit is cheap, and the underlying economic theory of our time is based on the idea that the amount of spending going on in society is a key metric in economics. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is based on the economic theories of the Austrian school, where saving is the key metric. Yes, they are costly to produce, but so is overproducing every product on earth because every business needs to expand as fast as possible to pay off their loans. Human well-being has always and will always be linearly connected to energy consumption. You can't get around or bypass this fact. Energy consumption and human flourishing are inevitably linked. The thing Bitcoin does is to take away the need for unnecessary energy consumption by incentivizing us to save for future generations. It's a mechanism that hinders our self-destructive tendencies. Not a threat to our planet's health, but a remedy. The next time you hear about the Bitcoin network using as much energy as a small country, ask yourself, where would all that energy have ended up if it wasn't funneled into the only invention trying to save us from ourselves that there is? Into a Chinese factory producing consumer goods shipped by boat, truck, and car for temporary use and probably ending up in a garbage pile the size of a small country in less than a year? How is that better for the planet? The only place solutions for humanity's problems can stem from is from human ingenuity. Such ingenuity, in turn, stems from places where people with brains have a shot at getting somewhere in life. Thanks to the internet and Bitcoin, that somewhere is everywhere. The internet connects us, and Bitcoin frees up our time and emancipates us from our current destructive systems. Bitcoin helps you plant a seed and watch it grow. Before you criticize Bitcoin, try to comprehend why it was invented and what inflationary soft money does 
to the mechanisms of the market. Try to understand why we have a climate problem in the first place. Why we overconsume. What underlying forces pull our psychological strings and make us lend money for a new car? It takes a special kind of ignorance to criticize a solution without first fully comprehending the problem. There's one specific word that describes the current global environmentalist movement better than any other, and that is hubris. Yes, the Earth has been getting warmer very slowly over the last 50 years. Yes, at least one of the ice caps might be melting. Yes, it's probably because of human activity. But no, you can't save the planet through political interference in people's lives. To get every nation on Earth to agree that it is a good idea to forcefully make people change their behavior for the sake of the climate is not only impossible, but also cruel and counterproductive. Collectivists always disguise their urge to deprive their fellow man of his or her possessions and freedoms as a necessary thing to do in order to, quote, save humanity. This is nothing new. They've just decided that climate change is the most effective banner to rally under right now. The causes change, but the underlying philosophy stays the same. It's very disturbing that the socialist experiment gets to repeat itself so many times in so many parts of the world. Human progress and human flourishing have linear relationships to energy usage. If we want to find new ways of bettering ourselves, we should use more energy, not less. Truly free market competition led to the most efficient solutions, and there are a bunch of incentives for producers of consumable goods to find cheap energy sources. Bitcoin provides the market with yet another incentive to find locations for and investing in power plants in remote areas of the world where the cost barrier for building the plant has been too high historically due to the costly and wasteful process of transporting electricity. Hydroelectric plants in areas with a high risk of flooding, for instance. These areas are not suitable for human settlements, but they could provide us with a lot of electricity. When producers have the option to convert electricity into money directly, they are more likely to use renewable energy sources, not less. In this sense, Bitcoin can function as a battery for energy producers. Offshore wind farms have a very specific wind force range where they produce a usable amount of electricity. The bigger the turbine, the wider the range, but they still have an upper and lower wind force limit. If an offshore wind farm was connected to a Bitcoin mining rig, the surplus energy produced on windy days could have been converted into a profit for the producer instantly. The same logic applies to solar farms and geothermal plants. Energy is not a finite resource in any practical sense for the inhabitants of Mother Earth. If we could harness and store all the power of the sunlight that hits the Earth during just one day, we could satisfy all of humanity's energy needs for a couple of hundred years. Bitcoin's role in all of this is unexplored, but its potential to be a very positive environmental force is huge, and it will prove its utility during the next century. On one hand, it provides energy producers with a battery. On the other hand, it gives central bankers a run for their money and ultimately forcing them to adopt a more sound monetary policy or become obsolete altogether. Bitcoin creates an incentive for sacrificing surplus energy 
for a small profit and a greater good, rather than just letting it go to waste. The energy harnessed is converted into a completely scarce asset, which is divisible and transportable to a much greater extent than any other valuable resource on Earth. It incentivizes the energy producer to think long-term and will reward those most patient and least wasteful among them. This recalibration of incentive structures is of course not only limited to energy producers or miners, but to anyone who embraces this technology and understands its implications. In due time, Bitcoin's superior monetary properties will be undeniable to even the most stubborn dinosaur. This would be an enormous net gain for humanity and the environment. Courageous politicians dare to implement unpopular policies. They don't need climate-striking teenagers to tell them which issues ought to be addressed first. It is ironic how celebrities that score cheap points by talking about the climate often accuse their political opponents of being, quote, populist. What really happens when you raise carbon taxes and try to force populations into behaviors that they don't really like? The gilets jaunes, or yellow vests, in France are a great example. People still have to commute to work. Raising taxes solves nothing. It just distorts the market and relocates the problem. The only thing the recently adopted environmentalist policies of France resulted in was the destruction of Paris, arguably not the best thing for the environment. In a truly free society, a society with sound money, climate-striking children wouldn't be a problem. They would have to learn to cooperate in order to address whatever imaginary problem they sought to solve, which would be harmless to the rest of us. Now, when backed by fear-mongering journalists, they can cause a ton of damage as our virtue-signaling political class needs to adapt to whatever imaginary issue the press has primed us with in order to secure votes. It's not about whether there is a real climate problem or not, but rather about motives. Always ask yourself, what does this person stand to gain from holding this particular opinion? Can this issue really be solved by political means? There's no such thing as a free lunch. There is such thing as representation, however. And there's always a personal economic motive behind political decisions. They're not here for you. You are here for them. One of the most eye-opening experiences of my life was seeing the lobbyist quarters in Brussels. The rise of veganism, placebic gluten intolerance, and meat-free Mondays in school cafeterias are all products of the food industry. A soy burger is a lot cheaper to produce than a beef one. To anyone that can sell it at a higher price by appealing to people's vanity or world-saving hubris, huge profits await. They've managed to monetize our collective bad climate conscience in such a cunning way that most of us have no clue we're being played. In the 20th century, the serial killers of the Kellogg's company and their likes funded, quote, research that cemented a fear of red meats and saturated fats into the minds of the public. The effects of this propaganda can very much still be seen today, as the inhabitants of America are about twice as fat today than they were before the introduction of 
light products, quote-unquote, on the market. All of these things are connected to the root of the problem, the lack of sound money. Inflation made it possible for the food industry to replace our homemade beef burger with a mass-produced cheap soy substitute while making us believe that the price of a burger hadn't changed that much the last 50 years. Spoiler alert, it had. Another of the most eye-opening experiences I've had was during my stay in a Mayan village in the Toledo district of Belize about 10 years ago. I spent a couple of days with a family of two adults and six children in a jungle village of huts and no electricity save for two diesel generators. One night, the father of the house told me a story about his friend going into politics a decade earlier and being murdered for having the wrong opinions. We slept on wooden beds without mattresses, and a couple of dogs and turkeys ran freely around the village. One day, the family's 10-year-old was listening to some Bob Marley songs on a CD player connected to a car battery and a small solar panel on a pole in the garden. I listened for a while and then asked him about the strange sound effects in between the songs. Helicopter sounds, machine gun sounds, and other strange noises were intersecting the songs here and there. He replied by telling me that, Oh, it's not a proper CD. I made it with a virtual DJ on my cousin's laptop. I was stunned. Here was this 10-year-old, in the middle of the jungle, being just as skilled with a computer as any other 10-year-old I ever met. In that moment, I realized just how leveled the playing field had been for the workforce across the globe. Here was this child living in a hut without even electricity, but without a mortgage to inherit, ready to compete on the same global market as any other kid in the world. Bitcoin is the logical next step. Bitcoin doesn't care about nationality, gender, ethnicity, age, sexual preferences, or any other imagined victimization or privilege. To Bitcoin, we are all equal. It is a voluntary system and it knows no biases. Bitcoin is equality of opportunity in its purest form, and it doesn't have any opinion on outcome whatsoever. Chapter 11. A New Form of Life Alright, unfortunately I have to close this here and there is so much to unpack in these last couple of chapters and I really don't have the time to get into it, which sucks because I really do want to. Um, in fact, I know I'm going to be short on time tomorrow as well, so I'm not sure what I'll do. I may, do, uh, I may try to get in a follow-up episode on Monday. Um, but unfortunately, I will not have time for much commentary. Um, there's so much great stuff in this, and I really want to get into the 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 higher order um, consequences of sound money because he kind of goes into that um, in kind of a light uh, way. And but I love that concept, and I think it's so critical to understanding this. So hopefully, I can get a chance in the next couple of days to really get into that um, and. There's just so much good stuff in this. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll, I guess I'll just, I'll just end this with one triggering comment about this whole piece, is there is nothing that will fail as spectacularly and is so obviously corrupt and about creating massive, bloated financial 
an additional bloated financial derivative than the carbon tax. It will do nothing to solve whatever this perceived problem is with our climate. And it is the biggest fraud and attempt at suffocating the economy of money to prop this, uh, prop this bloated financial system up for another you know, five to 10 years on a completely fake uh, financial derivative that will make a trillion dollar market out of nowhere that will, whose value will be entirely sucked out of the everyday working man. With all the political outrage about climate change, there is nothing even close to a semblance of a political solution there. It is one of the most dangerous set of idiotic policies I've ever seen, and it scares, it's even more scary that no one even talks about it. It's just like a given that as, as long as they write a bill that says climate fixing at the top, that, well, then everything will be great. And it doesn't matter if they suffocate the economy for another trillion dollars worth of value. Um, but uh, that, that'll be my triggering comment before we close this out. Uh, I will go no further into explaining my, uh, my reasoning behind that. Uh, so don't forget to follow Knutz von Holm on Twitter. And per the last few episodes, um, I will obviously have a link to the Amazon page where you can buy your own hard, hard copy of Sovereignty Through Myth Mathematics um, if you would like. And um, I definitely encourage you to support the author and, uh, again, obviously, uh, follow Svon Holm on Twitter. I will have the links and tag him and all of that juicy stuff uh, as well. So thank you guys so much for listening. Sorry I couldn't uh, devote a little bit more time to the commentary today. Uh, but we will be back in action tomorrow, and uh, after this weekend, I will be back to kind of uh, my uh, larger time slots to get this stuff uh, sorted. So thanks again, and I will catch you all next time. I am Guy Swan, signing off. Take it easy, guys.